I uh, want to invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be beginning in verse 19 this morning. And uh, I think this is going to fit well into where we've been, obviously, as we go through Scripture, that, that ought to be the case. But um, last week, I think as we listened to Rob and Michael teach, uh, we learned some specific things about the importance of uh, God's commands for us and love, um, that, that He desires uh, us to be confident in, in who He is and who we are in Him. And John's continuing this theme uh, this, this week in, in the text that we're covering. And uh, so I want to give you a couple of inter- introductory remarks because I think this is one of those things, and if I were to title this message, it would be that confidence emphasized that, that what John wants us to experience is an opportunity for us to have our confidence really like drilled into and to be founded well upon who we are in Christ. But there's struggles when we, when we deal with our confidence. And, and I think that's what he's uh, specifically addressing today is how we can often enter into this tension because of how we can look at ourselves. Um, and I know this about my own self and, and maybe uh, you're, you're like me, wired like me a little bit. I can be my worst critic on days. Is anybody like that? Um, yeah, some of you are, okay. So, some of us aren't wired that way. Congratulations um, if you're not, uh, because you, you probably just experience a little more joy in your life. <laughs> because I, as, as when I'm very self-critical, I tend to look at that and at things that I, I wrestle with and go, I downplay myself and I, I struggle to have confidence in some ways. Um, and so that's, that's my own wrestling right there. Um, so hopefully, I think when it comes to the spiritual aspects of who we are and what John wants us to recognize is our confidence is not in ourself, but it's in Christ, in the person of Christ. But if we don't understand these things well that, uh, that I think he's put, putting out in this text, then we will uh, miss the opportunity to, to remain confident. So um, the other interesting thing about this text, and I, I think this is especially important in, in our day and age, is, is this concept that uh, John goes back and he emphasizes the importance of spiritual laws. Now, we hear the word law and we tend to go, oh, I don't, I don't like laws because laws tend to inhibit us. Or we, we think, especially if we look around at culture today, everyone wants to redefine laws based on their own opinions and subjectivity. Um, and, and so that is, it, it puts us, I think, in a contextual point of tension where we are in contemporary culture. But, but John emphasizes the importance of law. But here's what's interesting. It's not the, the laws of the Old Testament, so to speak. It's the spiritual laws. Now, those, those laws I get are spiritual in, in a sense, but it's, it's an aspect of spiritual law that helps us evaluate where we are in our obedience to Christ. So, those are uh, some introductory things, and I want us to now look at the text. So, let's read 1 John chapter 3. We're going to read verses 19 through 4, 6, okay? So, let's pick up right here in verse 19. By this, by, by the way, um, I, I do this uh, editorial kind of frequently. Um, I would encourage you to, to note this uh, usage of a phrase in this epistle of John. Um, and I don't think we've identified this before, but I think it's important for us to recognize right now. And that is the phrase, by this, and he often says, with it we shall know or you shall know. 
Um, but by this is, is the primary key because you can look back in verse 16 and see the same phrase used. By this, we know. And then it says love. In verse 19, by this, we shall know. And, and so he uses that phrase, uh, I think like about six times in, in the entire epistle. So you might go back and, and mark those as you're reading through 1 John on your own. It would be a helpful thing. If you look over and um, it just pops out um, in chapter 4, verse 17, there's another one. By this. So that is a conjunction statement, if you will. It's joining what has been said before uh, to the thought. So you, you begin to really see how John is, is thinking in his mind uh, about the flow of thought and how ideas connect together. So we'll look at that a little bit more specifically. Now we'll read the text, having said all that, okay? Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what, he, what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, there's that phrase again, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we are uh, here together not only to worship you uh, as we've already done in our service, Lord, and we're certainly thankful for the, the truths that those songs reflect um, of Scripture. Lord, that they have certainly stirred our hearts and minds up to the, the truth of who you are. That, that you are a, a good father, that you are the, the one who's created all of the, uh, the known world and the universe. And those, the, the creation, all of it speaks to you and reflects you. And Father, this morning as we now turn our attention to this text and we think about the importance of, of our assurance and faith, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move, that you would teach us, that you would help us to, to both be um, confronted but also encouraged about where we are in our relationship with you. So, Father, we submit ourselves to, to your Spirit's leading, to the, the, the truth of the Scriptures. May you have your way in us now, in Jesus' name, amen. So, this morning, uh, what I want to look at in the text, and I, hopefully this will uh, be clear because it's, it's kind of, I think, simple, but, but as I was looking over this, I thought, man, this might be complex a little bit too. So, the the outline kind of that I would have is there's like three parts to who we are and how we consider ourselves, and then there's three verdicts that, that come about. So if you will, it's kind of six-point 
message, okay? So I want to work through the, the way that we might consider ourselves because as we're looking at the text, and let's, let's just kind of go back there and get a little bit of an idea of, of where my thoughts are coming from. So he, John says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. So there's that idea of assurance. How do we reassure that, that we are of him? Okay, and here's what he says in verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our, hearts, our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So there's this kind of uh, approach, and this is where I was saying the, the, those ideas about me being self-critical. I think that there's, a different, there's three different groups of people that can uh, appear from in this text, okay? And, and the first is that there are those that their hearts may condemn them, okay? So whenever our heart condemns us is what the text said. There's the, this idea that we can look at ourselves, and this is in a sense right, okay? But it's a sense that it's not full, like the full understanding of what, the, what happens to us from the gospel. And that uh, idea is this, that when we consider ourselves as sinners, that's a right understanding. But it can also reduce us to a, like a, a point where we are only critical of our sinfulness, because we don't recognize that, that Christ has paid for our sins, and there's a, a transformation that occurs in, in us. So, so that first, this first group is those that like rightly uh, uh, assess that, but they fall short in recognizing the hope of Christ in them. And, and I think those are, like if I was looking back at church history, those would be those ascetics who would continually beat themselves, the flesh, into submission, and they would live very, uh, I guess the, the easiest way to, to describe it is they would withdrawn from any of the amenities of life. They would, they would go without food for long lengths of time. They would, you know, so they would be fasting, and they, they would withdraw from culture and society and anything that had uh, like a positive impact because they saw their, themselves and their bodies as so uh, against the Lord that they, they had to constantly discipline themselves. And that's an extreme. I don't think that we live with those extremes very often in our day and age, but, but the tendency is still is for some to think that they're just pitiful people because they look at their sin and they elevate the importance and the priority and the, like the lens by which they view everything in life through their sinfulness. And, and that can be, even though it's a, a proper understanding, it can be a, a wrong position to hold. So it's, it's like, and, and what it might do even is it might uh, produce within them an, an unwillingness to, to, to look at the spiritual matters um, and become indifferent about them because they say, I'm just, I'm so bad. What's the point, right? I, I, I'm so prone to sin that there's no point in me pursuing godliness. There's no, pers there's no sense in me pursuing uh, the person of God because I, I, my sin just prevents me from doing those things. Have y'all been around people like that? Y'all are looking at me like, yeah, some of you have, okay. Because I, I know I have been. I've, I've counseled with people, and, and it's like they just can't escape the, their, their sense of rootedness in sin, and they just give up in that sense. And they don't want to care about anything spiritual. They feel like they can't even recover from, from sin. And so that's a dangerous place to be. So, so ultimately, I think when it comes down to their relationship with God, 
They, they fail to recognize his character, the hope that he offers. Um, they, they don't understand that he is a God who affords us compassion and mercy. That he, they, they fail to, to remember that he works through his covenantal acts. And so they, they just end up introverted in a sense, spiritually, and unhealthy on every level. And it's, it's really sad. But it's, the, the, and I think what's most sad is, again, it's rooted in a right idea, but it ends up in an incorrect position. Now, the, the second group, these are people who do weigh themselves in, in, with their conscience. They are, they're correctly looking at themselves. Um, they're, they're not afraid to search their hearts and those kind of things. But the problem is they only appeal to the court of the conscience. So what, what ends up happening is they end up with like this presumptuous ease. So they say, well, I'm, I'm good with God, but, and, and I know that there's sin, but I, everything's cool. And, and then they just live a, like what I would say is just a, a, a status quo life because they're really not progressing in their sanctification. Um, and so I think that's a little bit about what John is getting at. So when he says this in verse 20, so you can kind of hear these thoughts in these, this verse, whenever a heart condemns us, that would be that first group, and then we say, we're not worth anything. Then, they, then he says this, that God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So, so listen, there's a greater verdict here. There's a greater promise and a greater hope that we can trust God to engage with us. He knows all these things about us, but he wants us to understand ourselves from his perspective, not our own alone. And that's where the good news is. Because it's as if John is saying, don't get trapped in either of those two groups. Be, uh, understand that there's a greater promise and a greater uh, uh, perspective that comes along. So imagine this, because again, I, I go back to this picture the, of, of John uh, using this kind of concept of spiritual law. So put yourself in a position in, in the court for just a minute. And you're sitting on trial and you're having to give a testimony about your relationship and where you are in, in, in with the Lord. And the judge, we're, we're going to play this for just a minute that the judge is not God, but it's, it's somebody else that's just trying to figure these things out. And in, in this, you, you sit and you've been asked these questions. And you're like, I'm guilty, but I, I don't care. Or I'm, 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 I'm good because I have a relationship with God, and I know these spiritual things, but I'm, I'm not really changing. And it's like, wait a second. Then, then there's, they say, okay, the, the, the judge wants to hear something different about the case. So he goes, hey, I don't want you just to be the one to testify against yourself, okay, or testify on your behalf. I want to bring someone else in. Who, who, and he, he looks around and he says, who else could bring a testimony about your life? And then it's as if Jesus says, I can, because I know everything. It's like God can because he knows everything. So the judge says, okay, why don't you get off the, the, out of the, the, the bench, so to speak. Let him, the Lord, come up and give a testimony on your behalf. And so what he does in this testimony, knowing all things, what is he going to say about you? Having, if, especially if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. He's going to say this about you. Look, Matt or whoever, because they know Christ, because they've confessed him as Lord, their assurance is not based upon their sin. Their assurance is not based upon the, their own conscience and where they are. Their assurance is based upon the fact that Jesus Christ has borne their penalty, their guilt, and their shame. And so the verdict is this. They're clear. 
They're clear. My, my mercy and my grace have covered Matt or whomever you are. You are clear in the testimony that Jesus provides on our behalf changes the entire perspective. And see, that's where I think so often we can easily get trapped in the, the first two being on defense, if you will, in the trial and forget to appeal to Christ. And that's what John's getting at. He said, he's saying, don't let the world accuse you of those things. Don't become uh, trapped in that yourself. But instead, depend upon the grace and the mercy of Jesus because he transforms you by his work. Because guess what? If it's me standing there on behalf of my own works and my own self, I, I would be guilty. But because of who Jesus is and what he's done on my behalf, I'm clear of the charges. And that's where, what the root of assurance is found in. So here's what ultimately happens. So, we, we, so th those are the, the three groups, if you will. The first is, is that, that, that is self-condemning. The second is more status quo. The third is right, the ones that rightly depend upon Christ for their, their defense. And so then we get these three verdicts. Okay, so let's, let's look at how the verdicts might come about. The first verdict is when we provide a correct answer against ourselves. Um, it, it, is, it is this idea that um, we would be rightly guilty, okay? And, and, and it kind of comes back to that first group, if you will, because I think that we could easily agree that if we were to poll every one of us, there would be sin in our lives, that if we shared, they would be embarrassing sins, things that we would be absolutely ashamed of. The second verdict occurs is, is this, is that when we provide that incorrect answer against ourselves, we, we, um, our, our, our guilt and shame are incorrect because of who we are in Christ. The third is that one about Jesus. So let me look at this. Let's look at verse 21, because I think this is, again, important for us to, to hear. When we are that third group, the, the ones having the verdict of Christ come in on our behalf, look at what happens in verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us because we're resting in Christ, that's the meaning of that, then we have confidence before God. So, pastorally speaking, what I think every one of us needs to recognize is that we find our assurance and our hope in Christ alone. Now, that sounds very, like, I would say very simple, very consistent with messages that we hear. But here's my question for us today, and this is the pastoral mind at play here. Are we working and wrestling and striving in that heart and that mindset on a daily basis. D does that make sense, what I'm asking? Because I think it's easy, and I'll, I'll frame it this way, I think it's easy for us to come in here on a Sunday morning and hear those things and go, yeah, yeah, that's right. But then what we do is we tend to like almost maybe, and I'm, I'm maybe being a little uh, um, dramatic here, but maybe we it's like we close our Bible on Sunday, and then it sits on the shelf or sits in our car all week long until we come back into church, and we pull it out again on Sunday. And, and, and instead of us daily walking through who we are in Christ, recognizing that every day there is Christ assurance for us, and that He wants to daily remind us of the blessings of, of sanctification and journeying with Him 
through who we are in Him because of our faith relationship. So, so it's that finding that confidence and that assurance of walking daily with the Lord is what John's getting at. It's not that we would just do it once a week. So, and, and here's why I think that it's even more essential for us to recognize this and, and why John is getting at this point. Because I, I want you to look at this ver, after verse 21. Where does he take us in the text and, and in the consistent thoughts of this? He says in verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So, so he's taking this idea of our assurance and he's plugging it into what practical aspect of our lives? The area of prayer, right? And, and so it's easy for us, I think, at times to understand that we, we feel like, you know, you've heard this, my prayers don't get beyond the ceiling, right? We think they just kind of bounce back to us, that, that, that kind of um, jargon phrase there. It's that, that we're like not walking consistently with the Lord, and so we feel like our prayer life is weak or ineffective. And, and what John's getting at is when we are assured of our faith, it doesn't just mean it's a heart issue. It's a very practical issue for us because our prayer life is effective. So if you want to have a more effective prayer life, where does it really begin? It doesn't begin with praying more. It doesn't necessarily begin with just praying Scripture for the sake of praying Scripture. It begins with pray, a, a relationship with Christ where we are assured of how we are walking out daily our lives with Him. So, so when we walk in obedience to Him and that assurance is, has a good foundation, then we will see the effects in our prayer life. So let me, let me give you this, because I think this is important. If you were to look, and I'm going to read this, because I think this, this will help me get there. When we are in Christ, we possess a different privilege in prayer. As children of God, there are mercies, blessings, comforts, and favors that make life just useful in different ways. Then those same things that are not afforded to unbelievers. Did, did you get that? Unbelievers don't have the same privilege. That, that's a scary thing to think about in one sense, but it's a, a joyous thing for us to think about because we're adopted children, because we're co-heirs with Christ, because He is transforming us, because the Word, the Spirit indwells us and seals us until the day of redemption according to Ephesians 1. We are transformed and different and changed and prayer takes on a different aspect for us. Now, this is one of those things, though, that I think our, our culture, again, because of the compromise that has been made, especially by those who hold to a prosperity gospel, they think that prayer ought to bring all sorts of blessings for us. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying because of the blessings that are afforded for us, prayer changes. It's, a, it's a, the opposite direction of those things, the opposite meaning. Does that make sense? Gina, you're looking at me like I'm, yeah, hopefully I can say it again. So people that, are, that hold to the prosperity gospel, they look at prayer as the, the means by, uh, by which they will receive God's favor and blessings and mercies. The means of being in Christ is, is um, what affords us, us those things already. 
And because we, of who we are in Christ, that's what makes our prayers effective. Does that make sense? So it's the reverse. I, I didn't say it exactly, but I think it was close. You're still pondering. Anybody else still pondering it? This, Gina says she's slow. Is Gina slow? Not particularly. Not mentally, okay. <laughs> Great. So, so she's not one of your half marathon running partners. <laughs> she wouldn't make your, she ran 20 feet with you, is that what you said? And then she quit. She has a long stride and you'd think she'd be able to like do really well. I don't know why we're off on this now. Um, so yeah, so, so here's, let, let me try to shape it one more time. The, the point of what I think John is getting at and, and, and why He's saying our assurance is found in Christ. It, it, our, it, prayer then comes about because of our assurance in who we are in Christ. Okay? Prayer is not about us securing our assurance. Does, does that make sense? So prayer is not pleading for God's mercies and the blessings and all those things. Because even though he will get those, but those are already found in Christ and who we are in him. Yes, Sherilyn. That's a, that, there, that's a very helpful way, okay? So because you may not be able to hear over the air condition, I want to make sure I, I translate this. It's, prayer is not about our pleading with, but it's about our position of who we are in Christ. Now, does that mean we don't ask? No, 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 because the Scriptures tell us to ask these things. But, but part of this is recognizing, now remember where we are in the picture of the jury, if we don't have a right understanding of who we are in Christ, then we have a wrong perspective on prayer. Because if we're, we're, we think that prayer is about pleading about our uh, change and transformation, that's already occurred in who we are in Christ. And if we're walking in obedience, and we're going to look at that in just a minute, we're already getting those blessings. Christ wants to bestow those things on us because of who we are in Him, because the Spirit indwells us. So prayer is really much more about the relationship and the acknowledgement of who we are positionally in Christ. Now, now let me add a verse to this, and, and hopefully this will help us make some sense of this. Um, James 5.16, you'll, you'll be pretty familiar with this. It says, the, the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. Or the old translations, I like, I like them, availeth much. Isn't that a great way to roll off your tongue if you memorize King James? It, it has much power. It's, it's great. But here's, here's the, the, the thinking here. When, when we think through those incorrect pictures of ourself, where we think that we're guilty and we bear the shame of our sin, and we overemphasize those things, where we're leaning on our own righteousness, and, and we would look at James 5.16 and say, well, I'm never righteous. How can I have effective prayer? How, how can I avail much? How, how can my prayers have great power? This is the point. We need to remember that it's Jesus who comes in to the dock and stands on our behalf and says, the righteousness of you or me is not my own. It's Jesus' righteousness. That's what changes us. And so when we come to James 5, 16, and it says, the effective prayer of a righteous person, well, it's our righteousness rooted and grounded in the person of Christ. And therefore, that prayer does avail or has great power. It avails much because of who Christ is 
in us. And so what John is getting at, and this is why I think this is such a key passage for us to consider, is if we want to have great assurance and confidence in our walk with the Lord, we have to recognize who we are in Christ. And we have to recognize that who we are in Christ, it does impact our prayers. And we don't have to be fearful of our prayers never feeling like they get above the ceiling. Because if we are walking in Christ rightly and we are engaging with Him well, then prayer is effective because we're not depending on our own efforts and our own energies, but we're operating rightly in relationship to Him. Now, now here's where a, a place like Colossians 3 comes, like, comes into play really importantly, where Colossians 3 says that we're to put off the old man and all these things that go with the old man. I'm just paraphrasing, but it also says that we are to put on the new man in the image of Christ. And so I'm not just saying that we're passive in this. I don't think the Scriptures say that for sure. They, are, they, they call us, the Scriptures call us consistently to walk out our faith, to, to um, what, what, it's just escaped me, to, to um, work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling, okay? That we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That means that we're active. But it, me- it begins with this, and I-, I know Rob will echo this, Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? That, that we would, yeah, that Rob and that Rob. I'm not used to having two Robs here, so thanks. But Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us that we are to renew our minds. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we are be- to be able to uh, Im- impact our lives with spiritual renewal in everything that we do. Because it's, a, it's an act of spiritual worship. Okay, I'm paraphrasing that again. But, but God has called us to transformation of the mind and, and obedience in our living. And so prayer really is at the center of this. And John wants us to be effective in our prayers. But it's, we have to know that it's rooted in who we are in Christ. Now, I, I want to go to the, this next part because I think this is like a, a second piece to this in our assurance and confidence, because it's not just about us understanding who we are in Christ and and having an effective prayer life, but John goes on and says, it's also about the work of the Spirit in you. So when we are testing ourselves and we're, we're trying to hold this mirror up about how we're doing spiritually, he wants us to know and understand that the Holy Spirit plays a tremendously important role. And so let's, let's look at this, and we're going to pick up in verse 22 and follow this, this thought. And what we, whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what He pleases. So here's part of the, the puzzle, and I'll get, connect these dots. Obedience is key. So when we are praying, the, the Holy Spirit ought to use the Word of God in our prayer time to lead us to obedience to the commandments of God. And here are what His commandments look like in verse 23. He says, and this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of the, His Son Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded. So, so let me. Um, I want to make sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to pick this up here a little bit more. Verse 24: Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. And then He says this in four one: Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not 
confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and now is in the world already. Let's, let's stop there. Um, so I want to give you a couple key thoughts about what the work of the spirit is and does. The Holy Spirit will always make the most of Jesus Christ. It's, it's simple. And, and I'm going to even say this. If the Holy Spirit is making too much of the Spirit himself, I, I'm wondering what you're interpreting the Holy Spirit's work to be doing. Because Christ is the center of what the Holy Spirit is, is going to emphasize in the work of the Godhead. Because, and that's what he says right here. We, it's about our confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That is a, such an important piece of doctrine. Um, and here's what he does in this. And, and this is an important piece. He abides in us and us abiding in him. How many times, and we go back to John 15, uh, where he, he talks specifically in, in John 15 about the importance of, a, uh, of us abiding in the Holy Spirit. That is the work of the Spirit. And, and I love Ephesians 1, I've already mentioned it, verse 13, tells us that the Holy Spirit seals us. That's his part in the, the Trinitarian work, according to, to Ephesians 1, that he seals us until the day of redemption. The, the Holy Spirit will give us assurance and confidence, and he will always elevate the person of Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's that simple, folks. And so when we are walking in obedience, we will know that Jesus is Lord. We, we will sense and see that all the time. Now, when we're walking in with, like, I kind of, I'll phrase it this way, with one foot in the world, what happens with our love for Jesus? We might go, well, nothing really. That's naive. <laughs> because when, when we're walking with one foot in the world, doing the things of the world, our confidence in Jesus is compromised. Our, our attention on Jesus will, will wane. Our, our understanding of his value and importance in our life will often be reduced because the spirit of the world wants to detract from Jesus in every way. That, that's why we, we can't do, live in both ways. We, we, we can't please the, the things of the world and we can't live out the, the spiritual life at the same time. And I'm not saying that we have to beat our bodies in submission, but what I am saying is we have to understand the values of the world and constantly press against those things and press in to the Lord. We've already seen that in 1 John 2, 15 through 16, right? That, that we are not to love the flesh that the, or the lust of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life. Those things drain the life out of us. That they, they remove us. So we, we're not to love the world or anything in the world. And so what John is getting at, let's look back at the text here again, because you'll, you'll see this in, in the text. He says in verse... Uh, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then he goes on um, in verse 3, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Verse 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And then he says, verse 5, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. And the contrast, listen to verse 6 now, we are from God. Whoever knows God's, God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So, so here's the bottom line of this, and I, I hopefully clarify this a little bit. 
what, what our role is in, in understanding how to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the Word. The first is this. It's a doctrinal issue that we must confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Um, I, as, as we think about the text, he says this on a couple of occasions, that we believe in verse 23, 323, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. That, that is the doctrinal issue at stake. If we don't understand who Jesus is rightly, we've missed the boat. And that's a huge issue in our world today. Um, and I, I've shared this a, a, a couple times, um, but I want to draw this in just a little bit, and I'm going to take just a minute to do it. How many, of you, how many of you are familiar at all with the Nicene Creed? Okay, some of you are. Raise your hands really high. I want everybody to look around. Okay, Rob and Eveline, y'all come from some traditional churches that have, um, have used probably that in liturgy, Apostles' Creed, um, and, and those kind of things. I want to remind you that um, when you look at the, the word Catholic with a little c, it means the church as a whole, okay, that the universal church, that every person who believes in faith uh, or has faith in Christ, okay, um, that they're part of the Catholic church. Roman Catholic is typically all capitalized, okay, it will be typically used with Roman and then Catholic or capital C on the, for the, the Catholic church. So when you read a document um, like the Apostles' Creed, it talks about the Catholic Church. It's not the Roman Catholic Church that we would have some very uh, distinct, uh, strong distinctives from, okay? Um, now, I think the Apostles' Creed is very sound, so that's what I'm getting at. The Nicene Creed came around a little bit after the Apostles' Creed, and it specifically focuses in on the, the importance of who Jesus Christ is. There was a heresy going on. And you saw some people getting familiar with this, this creed. It's a very important creed. And I think at some point in the, the near future, because of the importance of what it means to understand right doctrine about Jesus, we're going to look into the Nicene Creed. We're going to look into the importance of the Trinity. I, I'm becoming more and more convinced that if our doctrine of the Trinity is at all compromised, our faith is really compromised because we don't understand the Godhead and how He operates uh, correctly. And, and, and not that we have to be like just totally tangential, but in the end, there's a separation in the distance that we go that leaves us lacking in our faith, which impacts in, in our understanding of who Christ is, and it impacts everything about us. Our ecclesiology, our worship, everything in our spiritual life is impacted if we don't have a good understanding of the Trinity. So, so what I'm getting at is this doctrine that John is pointing to. You have to remember, when John wrote this, this is one of the last books that was written in the New Testament. And at this point, I think that the Gnostic heresies were coming about. We've looked at that earlier in our introduction. They were believing wrong things about the person of Jesus. And ultimately ends up the Gnostics and, and the Arians, um, not, not the Arians as far as the, the Germans, okay? It's a different group followed Arius uh, about a heresy of uh, Jesus not being fully God and fully man, okay? So they had a wrong view. And so those, that group, John is seeing them on the, the horizon, so to speak, of his day. And he's trying to ground the church in the truth of who the, uh, Jesus Christ is. So do doctrine is essential. Now here's the, the, the problem, and I think this is where our world gets today. We tend to go, we hear the word doctrine, 
and we go, oh gosh, this is just going to be over my head. I don't want to deal with those things. Folks, I'm not saying you have to be the, the, the greatest theologian on the face of the planet, but every one of us are theologians at some level. And what we have the responsibility of doing is growing in our sound doctrine. That, that's every one of our responsibilities. And it means we may have to wrestle with some heavy things at some point. Because, again, there is a lot of false teaching in our day and age about these very things. If you pay a little bit of attention to like the LGBTQ movement, the social gospel movement that's been going on for decades now, um, almost a century actually, um, those things have actually compromised the, the true doctrine of the Godhead. They, they've compromised the understanding of the Trinity, and we need to come back and get these things right. So when we think about Jesus and what John's saying here, he wants us to understand the hope of who Christ is and be grounded in that. He's, he also does this, and, and here's, let me give you this little piece, and we're, we're about to wrap up. The danger is if we don't have good doctrine, then everything that we build our faith upon is experience. And experience changes. You know, I'll, I'll even say this. I, I was, Rob still, you'll probably know this guy. And if you do, I want to get a meeting with him some point. Um, Charlie Peacock. Do you know Charlie Peacock? Yeah, he acquaintances. You've met, okay. Uh, I figured you ran in those circles. Um, he had a line in a song that, that bugs me. It, it's, the line was, you can, only, uh, you can only possess what you experience. Truth to be understood must be lived. I'm like, I, I get where he's coming from, but I think it's a, a weak statement because I, I can possess things. I mean, I get, I get it, you know, well, you've experienced the truth of that knowledge, okay? That's what, kind of what he's getting at. I get it. But there's almost a point where he's elevating experience over truth. And I, I, I don't like it. It makes me uneasy. He, probably, he and I could probably sit down and have a lot of debate about that and end up going, okay, I see where you're coming in. Just good, good. Um, but here's my point. If we elevate experience and that's the only thing that we possess, we're, we're in danger because experience will change. And, and here's what I think John is ultimately getting at. We have to experience obedience. We have to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That, that's action. That's experience. Because it encompasses all of who we are. It's not just saying, hey, love God in your mind and your soul. No, it's, it's with our strength, okay, as well. And so he's, the scriptures tell us to love God with every part of who we are. God created us as physical beings to have experience, to act. But he, and He also commands us to love one another. Those are experiential things. They can't just be done in our head. They, they come through acts of service, acts of care, embracing one another. Those are things. And so if we've elevated one thing above the other, doctrine or experience, we're wrong in that. And a lot of the prosperity gospel folks, what do they do? They elevate experience. If, I, if you haven't experienced this, you don't, you don't understand. No, 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 that's not right. There, I think that the Scriptures teach that we're to be, experience a healthy balance of those two things, of doctrine and experience itself. It's because ultimately we have to 
understand and walk through these things rightly. To obey the commands of God requires our action. So, so, but it also requires the right doctrine to found the right direction and attitude and all those things that go with that in our actions. So, so balancing those things is essential. And when we do, and here's where I think ultimately John comes to, and this is where I, I want us to land the plane, so to speak. It means that we are operating according to the power of the Spirit at work in, in us, testing the Spirit's so that we don't enter into error, but we're rightly obeying, so that we're not falling prey to the enemies who weigh against us, because where, is, where are we ultimately going to evaluate the enemies, the, the spirits of this world that wage war against us as believers? It's based upon the truth of Christ, right? So we have to have the doctrine, we have to have the practice of those things, so that the enemy does not have his way in us. That's where our assurance lies. Because if we don't operate in those ways rightly, then we will be undermined in our faith and our security in understanding rightly who we are in Christ and how we rightly operate in obedience to His commands will fall short. So, so we have this responsibility to walk in assurance in the power of the Spirit. So, so if I could summarize this and, and just kind of issue one question this morning that we need to rightly understand who we are in Christ. If, if we don't, then what we are is compromised. And how are we compromised? We're compromised, one, in our effectiveness in prayer, and two, in our ability to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. And where that leaves us is with doubt and, and compromised in our walk of faith. So the Lord wants us to be confident in who we are in Christ because of His righteousness for us to operate righteously in our prayers, not depending on our own, but depending upon Him, so that in our prayers and in our abiding in the Holy Spirit and in an operation of doctrine and experience together, we would love God and love one another. It's really, really simple. And John just keeps going back to these things again and again to say, be assured of who you are in Christ. So here's my question. Where's your assurance today? Where's your confidence? Is it in you and your habits or your, your own self-awareness? That's not enough. Your confidence has to be in Christ. It has to be in Christ. Are you seeing the fruit of His, the Holy Spirit's work in your life? That will give you confidence. So I, I hope that every one of us this morning We'll, we'll kind of take this text and hold, up, hold it up to us as a mirror to say, how, how am I? Because I want us to be confident in the Lord, in the Lordship of Christ over, over us. So, so let's bow together and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as I uh, think back over my studies and things that I've worked through and, and read, Lord, and... Um, just coming back to the, the, the text itself. Lord, th this is in some ways a, a difficult passage to unpack because it can be wordy and, Lord, I, I may fail miserably to try to boil it down this morning, but I trust your spirit. And, Lord, beyond all of my own weaknesses and, and struggles, Lord, I, I know that your spirit is good and you, uh, that preaching is foolishness, but you don't let the, the teaching or the presentation of your word return void. So that's the promise that I stand in in this morning. And Lord, for us, every one of us,
Lord, beyond my weaknesses, this is about us rightly understanding where we are with you, that we would be individuals, also a, a local church, as well as part of the, the church body universal that would be confident in Christ and who He is in us. Lord, that we would abide in the Spirit as He abides in us. And, and Lord, that would bear good fruit in our lives, that fruit of obedience, of loving You and loving others. And Lord, also part of that fruit is, is being able to test the spirits and know that, that they, the world and its, its system that's controlled by um, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is, is, that is at work in the sons of disobedience, Lord, he would not have authority over us in any way. But instead, we'd be able to, to stand firm in the truth of who we are in Christ, that, that when accusations come against us, we would be able to hide behind the cross. Because that's what ultimately John points back to in, in the connection in verse 19, is points back to verse 16. It says that Jesus is the one who establishes our security. So Lord, I, I pray that today every believer here would take these things to heart, that we would pursue you wholeheartedly, Lord, that, that our confidence would be sure because of who we are in Christ. And Lord, for every person that may be here that's not a believer, Lord, their, their hearts and, and minds may be struggling with some of these things, Lord, but the, the truth of what they need to know is simply this, that Jesus alone saves and He is sufficient and effective in His work of salvation. Lord, they can come to Him and confess that He is Lord, and their, their life will be transformed. They will have hope and peace and security, and You will do a good work in them. Father, that's why Jesus came and uh, endured the suffering of the trial and the, the penalty of the lashings, and His blood was spilt upon the cross. And he, it was to bear our guilt and shame and to pay the penalty for our sin. So, Lord, I, I pray that, that if there's anyone here that, that needs to know Jesus as their Savior, that you would give them courage and boldness just to seek out counsel, to talk about that, to, to find assurance in, in salvation. So, Father, today, again, um, I just want to say this in, in final prayer, Lord, as Rob uh, focused in on this, that today is Father's Day, and Lord, I thank you for all the guys in our church and, um, Lord, how they work together to, to encourage one another in their godliness, how um, they're, they're pursuing you in that especially, and Lord, how they're leading their families. Lord, I see it across the, the, the scope of this, this body. And Lord, as Rob said this morning through worship, Lord, we have a Heavenly Father who's perfect. And even as good as our guys are, Lord, I know every one of us is imperfect and we fall short. But Lord, we are so grateful that we have a Heavenly Father who is perfect in every way. Lord, uh, today, as we celebrate dads, may it also be a reminder that, that we have you, and we are adopted by you, and, and we experience your goodness, for you don't withhold good things from your children. What a great and mighty God you are. You're, you're majestic, you're sovereign, and you're worthy of our worship and our adoration in every way. So, Father, today, we, we just thank you for the time that we've had together. 
Uh, I pray that you'd bless us as we go out. Keep us safe through the rest of this week. Bring us back uh, providentially next Sunday to, to when we can worship and, and um, just be invested in one another's lives again. We love you and praise things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.